We are going to be in Acts 17, verse 16 through the end of the chapter. This is probably, I've said this before, probably my favorite passage in Acts, one of them at least. In fact, last night, uh, well actually beginning yesterday afternoon, I had to rework the whole structure of my sermon. It was one of those weekends. <laughs> I, uh, I wanted to put so much stuff in here and I, it was just... It was like hitting a wall, and so I, I reworked it. But I love this passage. In the flow of, of uh, the early church's history, as Luke's recounted it for us, it's, it's a fascinating passage to me. Because on the one hand, you have mighty Athens. Um, even though in Paul's time it was not as mighty as it once was, it's still today recognized as a byword of, of sophistication, of uh, thinkers, of culture, of sculpture. And so you have mighty Athens and then you have Paul. And Paul walks right into this mighty Athens and just boldly declares the gospel. But the way he does it is really what fascinates me and that's what we're going to look at today. Um, and I hope to pull out some truths for you guys this morning of how we also can learn from Paul to engage the culture. We have much in our armory, so to speak, that we can use. During uh, the height of its prominence, Athens was the leading center of culture and philosophy in, in the 5 and 400 BC, 5th and 4th centuries BC. In case you didn't know, Athens was the birthplace of democracy. And uh, obviously that's influenced the world. It's changed the world. It was, it was in Athens that democracy in some form or another was birthed largely through thinkers like Plato, his work, The Republic, if you've ever read that, as well as others. It was leaders in culture, philosophy, sculpture, literature, rhetoric, oratory. In fact, concerning philosophy and some of the thinkers, it was the native home of Socrates and Plato. It also became the adopted home of men such as Aristotle. Epicurus and Zeno, all men who have influenced the world. It was, in fact, because of those men and their influence, even on the church, that I myself wanted to study philosophy and how these ideas that they put forward influenced the church. Many of the early church fathers, for instance, thought that Plato was a Christian. Many accused him of plagiarizing the Old Testament because some of his writings were, were closely resembling to doctrines they'd find in the Old Testament. That's not true, he didn't plagiarize, but it does show us a truth that, that these men were very in tune with the investigation of nature and truths that they drew, drew out of that reflected truths that are also revealed in scripture. And that's what we're gonna talk about today. Now obviously there's limits to that when you don't have uh, God's special revelation to also clarify things for you, but Nonetheless, they came to some conclusions that made early church fathers think that Plato at least could have been a believer. I don't believe that. Nonetheless, let's read our passage. Let's begin in verse 16 of Acts 17. Luke writes, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. 
Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. If you remember our account, Paul had been in Thessalonica and he'd been in Berea. And in both places he'd been chased out by the Jews. And he had to be taken by ship down to Athens. But he he went to Athens alone. And you've got to understand how difficult that was for Paul. In fact, he references it in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 1 and 2 I have up there. Yet he was willing to be alone in this megaplex of Athens because he understood Silas and Timothy and Luke, they needed to strengthen those young churches. They needed to encourage them and ground them in the faith. And it was better that he be left alone in Athens than they be left alone to the wolves. And so he sent his whole missionary team back to those churches and he found himself in Athens alone. But Paul, not content to waste time, he began walking around that great city and just observing, taking in everything he could. And while he was doing this, Luke tells us that his spirit was provoked within him. I love these last two points. I want to talk about them for just a moment. First, Paul didn't waste any time. He didn't see this as a vacation. He was left alone in Athens, not necessarily by his desire, definitely by his choice, but he made the best use of it. He traveled around, he walked around that great city of learning and culture, he took it in, he observed, he watched, he began to find points that he could begin to talk to them with. Nonetheless, upon walking through the city, it says the spirit was provoked within him. And we've got to understand how strong of a word that word provoked is. Literally, he was exasperated to anger. From what he saw, he was exasperated from anger because of the many, many, many idols that were found in Athens. One famous Roman satirist remarked that it was easier to find an idol than a man in Athens. That's how full of idols the city was. And what's an interesting contrast is that when we read the account from Scripture, Paul looked at this mecca of culture, of of marble statues, Roman colonnades, and great buildings and temples. And he saw it and was provoked. We We have accounts of Athens from around the same time Paul visited from Roman historians. And when you read their description of Athens, it's like walking through a beautiful museum. And it's just interesting to see the contrast of how those cultured people who don't know the Lord, they look at this and say, wow, so beautiful. Paul looked and said, wow, what idolatry. It's an interesting contrast. One would exalt uh, their spirit at its beauty, at its culture, at their sophistication. The Athenians were even known to make idols out of their thoughts. That's how high and lofty they viewed themselves. 
Paul was provoked to anger. I love that point to think about Paul's zeal for the Lord. The massive amount of open idolatry provoked him because he loved Christ that much. And as he saw these idols of worship being propped up, he was jealous for his God. But notice that he doesn't take his anger out on the people. He reasons with them. His spirit became provoked within him because the city was full of idols. So Luke says, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews. James tells us this, James 1.20, that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Paul was always that balanced person. He was rightly angry at the sin, and yet it led him to plead with the sinner. He didn't let his anger spill over and cause injury to that person so as to chase them away from his God. No, he pled with them, he reasoned with them, he presented his arguments for God to them to win them over. That's the balance that we need as a church. Very often, in my own life, I've seen this lacking, and I've seen it lacking in churches, but this is, this is a perfect model of how I want us to be, how I want to be as a, a believer, as a pastor ministering to people. Because as a pastor, I can err in not getting angry at sin. Scripture says God's angry at sinners every day, Psalm 5. But what's he do about it? He pleads with them to come to him, to be cleansed, to be forgiven, to be restored. Because sin destroys his perfect creation and it mars his image. We should be angry at sin and it should motivate us to something. It should provoke us to something. It should provoke us to go to him and plead. So I wish that we as a church would show more anger than we do towards sin. Unfortunately, what happens is sin has a tendency to kind of creep slowly into our lives until we just kind of get used to it. I wonder how provoked Paul would be if he were to walk around our culture today. What a shock would overcome him at some of the displays he sees when you can't even turn on your TV and watch a a commercial for a stick of gum without seeing a half-nude woman. What kind of anger would overcome him? Sin destroys people and it destroys families and it exalts the creature above the creator. Yet, we're continually told, go to them. Plead with them. In fact, Paul would also say that it's the kindness of God that brings men to repentance. It's the kindness of God that brings men to repentance. That's what we see Paul doing here. So as he was provoked, he went, as was his habit, we've seen over and over to the synagogue first, where the Jews were and the God-fearing Greeks, devout persons. But he didn't stay in the synagogue it's interesting, right? Because we as a church tend to do that. We'll, we'll come to the church and we'll invite people to the church and we'll reason with them there. <laughs> but what, what else did Paul do? He went to the marketplace every day also. That's where they were, so that's where he went. There's always a twofold ministry in Scripture. There's the ministry where we do invite people, join us, come. But there's the ministry of, let's go to them. Again, we see Paul perfectly in balance. He went to the marketplace every day 
with those who happened to be there. So Jews, God-fearing Greeks, the Epicureans we're going to look at here in the Stoics, anyone who would listen, Paul would engage with. Didn't matter. I love that. Who were these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers? These were the dominant philosophies at this time in Athens. And so it's, it's interesting to look at it. There's some similarities you can obviously pick up between then and now. Epicureans were materialists. They believed that all matter was eternal. And if there were any so-called gods, these gods remained uninvolved with human matters. We would, we would call those deists today. That perhaps there is a God, but he's completely separated and uninterested in the affairs of people. That's a modern-day deist. The Epicureans also taught that the people's highest goal should be the pursuit of pleasure. And it's not just sexual pleasure they pursued, whatever kind of pleasure. If your pleasure was in power, in money, in possessions, whatever it was, your goal as a person should be pursuing that. There is also no eternal life and no judgment. Now that's a convenient worldview, isn't it? Very convenient worldview. By the way, that is a God of our own making, is it not? We don't want there to be a God who will hold us accountable for how we live. And so we'll create a worldview where there isn't one and we can do whatever we want and not fear judgment for it. That's how we make idols of the heart. That's what an idol of the heart is. The Epicureans, to me, uh, remind me so much of American pop culture. While American pop culture today is, tends to be more religious, at least than it once did, they're nonetheless very much in tune with pursuing pleasure and not believing in judgment. That's very much where our culture's at. So you can see how this thought has still resonated through the years, through the centuries. This, by the way, for me, is why I wanted to know what are these great philosophies that influence the world? Because guess what? They're still here and they're still infiltrating the church. In fact, we're, uh, we're going to do that Worldview Conference in January I've been telling you about. It's going to be on postmodernism. And the reason I did postmodernism as my thesis, chose to look at it, uh, was because I wanted to, uh, to suffer greatly. <laughs> I've actually thought, I, I don't know what, what's worse, that I did my thesis on postmodernism or that I chose to do my thesis on postmodernism. I don't know which, which is greater punishment. But it, it led me to see this thinking is infiltrating the church today. And we don't recognize it, we don't see it, we don't know what it is. Yet we blindly accept it. We operate by its principles. We make decisions through these philosophies and we don't have any clue the, the origin or, or influence that it's had throughout the ages. Same thing here. Not much has changed. What about the Stoics? Well, they held to a pantheistic worldview that all is God and God is all. God is the soul of the universe, everything that is. They held to a deterministic outlook of reality. That is that we should simply and dispassionately accept whatever hardships happen as being inevitable. This has influenced religious systems, even in Christianity. There are some very hardcore reformed thinkers 
who hold to a deterministic view of God's sovereignty. That whatever happens is God's will. Well, guess what? The Muslims have the same view of God's sovereignty as that. Everything that happens is Allah's will. It's just determinism. I don't happen to be at that point theologically. But again, we see this worldview philosophy has much in common with scientific naturalism today. If all there is is material mechanism, there really is no will involved, there really is no choice involved. What you do, you're just doing, not because you chose to do it. So Paul engaged these men. Does it surprise you that Paul was able to not just talk to common people, not just to Jews, but that he was able to engage with these philosophers as well? Pretty cool view of Paul, right? I love that. Well, they listened to him, but uh, not necessarily with an intent to learn. This is what they said mockingly to him. Some said in verse 18, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Literally, Paul was called a seed picker. That's what it literally reads. And what, are, what it's saying is it's a derogatory term for a pseudo-intellectual. They prided in themselves on their philosophy and their ability to formulate great systems of thinking, of metaphysics, for instance, Plato and Aristotle, some of the greatest thinkers in the world had passed on that heritage to these men, and so they prided themselves on their systems of philosophy that had been developed over the centuries. And they saw Paul as coming along and just picking little bits of thought here and there, disconnected to, to any other system of thought, and just trying to say something about it. It's a pseudo-intellectual. It's one who simply just dabbles in things but doesn't really dive in. That's how they saw Paul. So derogatorily, they called him a seed picker. And others said, well, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Why? Because he's preaching Jesus in the resurrection. Now, this is an important point I'll establish here because we're going to look at the, Paul's use of natural theology, of general revelation. But what did he start with? He started with the gospel. That's what men need to know. When they didn't respond to that, he met them where they were at. So because of Paul's preaching and, and it piqued their interest, verse 19 says they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. Maybe your Bibles render it Mars Hill. Uh, Ares was the Greek god of war, also named Mars. And so the Areopagus was actually a court in Athens of, made up of men who ruled and made decisions over religious affairs. They didn't just want anybody coming in and teaching what they wanted. So they were a very prestigious court. The Areopagus was a very prestigious court, ruling over religious, moral, and even homicides in Athens. So they took Paul to the Areopagus, and that was placed on Mars Hill, the Hill of Ares. And what's awesome about this is still there today. It overlooks the great city of Athens and its schools and its beams, and Paul would have had all that in view as he preached the gospel to them. Pretty cool, especially when we get into what he says. So they take him to the Areopagus, wanting to know what this new teaching was. Now, 
Luke clarifies for us, verse 20 and 21, it's not that they're simply interested in believing the gospel. They just delighted in knowledge. And this was new, so they wanted to know it. It's very different than someone who wants to know because, man, I need what you're saying. Right? It wasn't a a knowledge that they wanted to become disciples of Christ. They just loved knowledge for knowledge's sake. Verse 20 says, You bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. What a commentary, verse 21. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. Now, I don't know about you. I love learning. I want to be a learner. It's a motivation of mine. I don't want to be stagnant in learning. I always want to push myself. But there can always come a point in our life where you're gaining knowledge just for knowledge's sake. And that's never healthy. Why are we pursuing knowledge? In this case, it can become a a hindrance to the gospel and growing in Christ. I don't ever want to get there, but I do want to remain a learner. Paul would say it this way. Let your philosophy, let your knowledge be according to Christ. Grow in that, and you'll always bear fruit. As he said in Colossians, for in Christ are all the riches of the knowledge of God. And it's a delight to the soul to gain it. So here's Paul's defense to the Areopagus, to the court, as he stood there on the hill of Ares. Verse 22, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. So Paul acknowledges the religious plural pluralism and dedication of the Athenians. Some have suggested that he's, he's kind of pointing out their vanity. I don't think that's what he's doing. I think he's humbly meeting them where they're at. Say, yeah, you're very zealous. I, I, I can tell you're very zealous for religious worship. I even found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God on it. And he uses that as his starting point. I love this. Here the inscription that Paul quotes is in the singular, and I want to talk about this a little bit. There's an interesting point for us to consider. Archaeological discoveries have found other inscriptions mentioned in Athens and elsewhere that are found in the plural, in other words, to the unknown gods. They've never found an inscription in the singular like is quoted here, to the unknown god. This has led some scholars, in fact a teacher of mine is the first one who who brought this up, it's led some scholars to wonder if what Paul found was something that Plato himself had talked about. And I'm going to give you a quick history of this. Plato, who founded the School of Athens of Philosophy, understood that the material world changes. We're always changing. If you look at a picture of yourself as an 18-month-old, compared to who you are now, you'll see yourself in that picture, but you're definitely not that person. You've changed. And so Plato understood, okay, well, there has to be a being who doesn't change. There's got to be someone outside of this realm who is constant. We would agree with that, right? The God that we worship is not part of his creation. He's the creator and he's separate from it. No problem, Plato. 
But because of that, because this realm that we exist in is always changing and we're always changing and we're limited in how much we can know, he believed that this being, whom he called the Demiurge, was beyond knowing, that we could never know him. And so some scholars think that that's what this inscription is talking about, to the unknowable God. And if that's the case, how cool that Paul picked up on it and said, hey, he is beyond our grasp, but he's revealed himself to us. And I'm about to tell you about him. How cool is that? I don't, unfortunately, think that's the likely interpretation. It is an interesting one. I think Paul's actually picking up on, hey, they've got so many idols, they actually made inscriptions and idols to cover their bases because of their ignorance. We don't want to leave any God out. So to the unknown God as well, which also is a, is a very powerful inroad and meeting starting point for Paul. He starts with their ignorance and he builds the case for the God they did not know. Interesting thought nonetheless. I, I think it's worthy of consideration. It certainly doesn't violate the scripture and it certainly doesn't violate Athens and where, what they would have understood. Plato being the founder of that great philosophical tradition in Athens, they would have known all about that. Nonetheless, Paul in his defense is going to focus on four aspects to consider. God as creator, God as provider, God as ruler, and God as judge. And what's interesting is all four of these points, except for, I should say all three, except for the last one, are truths about God that he appeals to nature to establish. In other words, people can have a knowledge of God as creator simply by studying nature. They can have a knowledge of God as provider simply by studying nature. And they can have a, God, a view of God as ruler simply by studying nature. Let's consider this. First, God as creator, verse 24. He says, what therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. And just as the biblical text starts with creation, so does Paul. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Go back to Acts 14 real quick with me. I'd mentioned this when we studied Lystra, and I told you then, I was going to develop this a little more, but I want to remind you of what Paul said at Lystra, and, and, and remind you of who Lystra was. Lystra, remember, had no synagogue of Jewish presence there. It was, it was just largely Greek influence. It was in Lystra that Paul and Barnabas were um, nearly worshipped as Zeus and Hermes, if you remember that. But in Acts 14, verse 15, here's what Paul said to the men at Lystra. He says, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news. That you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. Now what's his witness? He did good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. It's the same argument he's developing with the men at Athens. It's a direct challenge, by the way, to the worldview of the Epicureans and the Stoics. Epicureans were materialists. Materialism always existed. The material realm always existed. He's eternal. Paul's saying, no, God began it. 
but it was also different than the Stoic view of determinism. No, God has a will in it, and he's guiding. So we must clearly begin to articulate the Christian worldview with creation. Did you know that the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis have some of the most important teachings of of Christianity? Guess which 11 chapters of the Bible are most contested? Genesis 1 through 11. Interesting, huh? There are so many fundamental truths about the Christian worldview established in those 11 chapters, it makes sense that they're attacked vigorously. So Paul starts with creation back in Acts 17. And in verse 25, he moves on. Or rather, sorry, skipped a slide. God, what, Paul, what Paul's affirming here in creation is that God made the world and he made everything in it. Now you can derive many truths from that. If you just do a quick survey of everything in the world, look at how diverse the world is. That gives you a little glimpse of God. Pretty cool, right? God made the world and everything in it. God is Lord of heaven and earth. In other words, he's not like the Stoics said and the Epicureans said, disinterested in us. He rules heaven and he rules earth. He's interested in us. You can cross-reference those references there. Psalm 24 verse 1 says it very clearly. The earth is the Lord's and all in it, all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. So Paul affirms several key truths, but he moves on. Verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is provider. He's not served by human hands as though he needed something. In other words, he doesn't need our worship. He doesn't need our carvings. He doesn't need our temples. No, he created all these things. He doesn't need any of that. On the contrary, he himself gives to all life, breath, and everything. That's a very large, encompassing statement. Everything we have is contingent upon him giving it. By the way, that's one of the arguments, philosophical arguments for the existence of God is the argument from contingency. Every single one of us is contingent for our existence upon our parents and they upon their parents and they upon their... Well, you can't have an infinite regress. At some point, there had to be a first one. We call that God. So it's the argument from contingency. God has provided. It also speaks of his goodness. He provides for his creation. Even these men in Athens who prop up Zeus and worship an idol, what's he still do? He gives, he gives, he gives. He holds their life in his hand. He gives them breath. He gives them all things. C.S. Lewis, famous atheist converted to Christ, would talk about what led him to faith was the argument that he'd always held to as an atheist based on the existence of evil, God couldn't exist. God wouldn't allow evil things to happen if he's good. But he started to realize, how can I even have an idea of evil if there isn't some good standard by which I'm comparing it to? And if, if evil is a universal evil, in other words, if I go to Bangladesh or 
or Germany or wherever, and anywhere I go, things are evil, murder's wrong, rape is wrong, anywhere I go, those things are universally evil, then there's got to be a universal good. So he came to develop what's called the moral argument for God. There is a moral, universal moral law. Well, every law has a lawgiver. If there is a universal moral law, then there's a universal moral lawgiver. And C.S. Lewis, through reasoning in that way, abandoned his atheism and eventually would come to faith in Christ based on his goodness. Paul also highlights, though, God as ruler. In verse 26 through 29, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. God made from one every nation of mankind. We have man in in its simplest form, the doctrine of man stated here. What's interesting is science has, has also come to finally conclude this, that there was indeed an original set of parents. We know that through DNA now. Of course, we say, yeah, we've been saying that all along. Adam and Eve is their name. They, they won't come to that conclusion yet, but they do recognize every person living can be traced back to a single set of parents. That's what Paul says here. God made from one every nation of mankind to live. He's also determined our appointed times, and he's determined our habitation. Paul points out that man's earthly habitations, the seasons that govern our time, are for our good pleasure. That's what he says in Acts 14, 17, we read earlier. Those things bring delight and needed sustenance. God has set up his creation to support us in habitable zones. He's determined those times. Question needs to be asked as far as what is appointed times referring to? Because some interpret this passage as referring to the seasons that govern harvest, for instance. Summer, spring, fall and winter. Others interpret it similar to the way Daniel speaks of in Daniel 2, 31-45, when Nebuchadnezzar tells Daniel his dream of the statue made of different elements. And Daniel interprets that for Nebuchadnezzar as different epochs of, of rule, different kingdoms. Esther, for instance, was said to have arisen for such a time as this. So that's the sense in which some people interpret this passage. Either way, I think both are true. I don't necessarily think it's an either-or argument. It's a both-and argument. God has appointed seasons. That's how he governs this world and the, the physics that rule it. And it's good. The land rests, it rejuvenates, and yet God also has sovereignly determined when and where you would be born, and he's placed you there, and why has he placed you there? So that we would seek him. Each and every one of us can say 
Just as it was said of Esther, I was born for such a time as this. Does that not encourage you? It should encourage us. It's by God's choosing and his plan that he's brought you in this time. Moses said in Deuteronomy 32, speaking about these habitable zones that God has created to support life, he said this, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. I gotta confess, I don't know what that means. He set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. Well, there's 12 sons. And I don't know if Moses is saying, if you look at the globe and see 12 general habitable zones, which God has allotted, I don't know. It's an interesting study, by the way. You can look at that and tell me next week when I get back. I'd be interested to see how you take it. Nonetheless, so God is ruler. In support of making this assertion that God is ruler, Paul doesn't turn to the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. He could have, but it, would have, it wouldn't resonate with them. However, the same truths that the Hebrew scriptures communicated, Paul found within some of their own poets. Epimenides is the first he quotes. And here's the poem that Epimenides write, wrote. Paul only quotes the last line. Here's what Epimenides said. They fashioned a tomb for thee, O holy and high one. The Cretans, always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. But thou art not dead. Thou livest and abide, abide forever. For in thee we live and move and have our being. What's interesting is Paul quotes Epimenides here. He also quotes him there in Titus 1.12. And we just looked at that, Dwayne and Bo and I, in going through the qualifications. Paul quotes this poem and ties it into the qualification for an elder because some men teach false doctrine. And he ties that poem, and I'll let you read it. I'm not going to take time to go develop that. The other poem he quotes was entitled Natural Phenomena or Phenomenae. The author was also from the region that Paul was from, Cilicia. His name was Eretus, and here's his poem. Let us begin with Zeus. Never, O men, let us leave him unmentioned. Full of Zeus are all the ways and all the meeting places of men. The sea and the harbors are full of him. It is with Zeus that every one of us in every way has to do, for we are also his offspring. So again, I'm putting before you these in full to show you Paul knew the culture. And he could extract things that were true from the culture to engage them with. This is so important if we want to be a fruitful, effective church in ministering. But I don't want you to misunderstand what Paul is doing. He's not envisioning God in terms of Zeus. Does that make sense? He's not picturing God how they describe him. He's highlighting the true God, God's revelation of himself in nature, and that even these poets have recognized this truth, even though they've nonetheless ascribed it to an idol. So it'd be like quoting a famous quote accurately, but ascribing it wrongly to a different author. Okay, that's what they've done. They got the quote right, but they said so-and-so did it or said it. No, Paul's saying, that's true, but it's God. <laughs> that's what he's done. 
And lastly, he depicts God as judge, verse 29 through 31. Let's pick it up in verse 30, though, since we read 29. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all peoples everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Here's Paul's twist of irony. I love this. Remember, Paul was called the seed picker, right? There's a derogatory slam on him. Very gently, he turns that charge on his listeners. He says, God commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because you're ignorant. (laughs) You're the ones who are picking little thoughts here and there. He just quoted two poets. Yeah, you you saw that rightly, but man, you missed it. They're the seed pickers. And Paul has very gently turned it on them and brought them to the truth. You see as in a, a mirror dimly. Let me illuminate it for you. Paul uses the word commands there to repent. We don't usually talk about repentance as a command, but it is because we all have guilt. Paul is commanding all people. Therefore, the gospel is for all people. And God is pleading with all people to repent. Now, he knows that not all people will, but the invitation and the command is for all to turn to him. This is an open invitation, in other words. Even Spurgeon, the five-point Calvinist, said, if God commands to all people, then all people can obey it. This is the open invitation to come to him and find life, find peace, find forgiveness. Because there will be a day that he has fixed Paul says, where he will judge the world in righteousness. And that is a quote from the Hebrew Old Testament. The assurance of this judgment that it will happen, he also says, was given by raising Jesus from the dead. In other words, the assurance that judgment will come is fixed. It will happen. Why? Because he raised his son from the dead. That's the evidence for. So the evidence of of the resurrection is not just the evidence for the Christian and our life in him. It is also evidence to a world and the judgment that awaits. So Paul, in a masterful way, brings the listeners to God's special revelation. They clearly perceive some things right about God though they ascribed it blindly and falsely to idols. But what Paul declared here, no one could have known unless God had made it known. So what of it? What was the results? Verse 32 to the end of the chapter. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. And what's interesting, we're not told if they ever did. Don't know. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, amongst whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Dionysius was one of the members of the court. 
Pretty cool, huh? He was one of those members judging Paul, and he himself came under judgment, but repented. There's a woman, apparently of special status, named Damaris, as well as others. We're never told whether a church in a formal sense was established in Athens. They did invite him back to speak, but we're not told how long he stayed. Verse 18, or chapter 18, verse 1, after this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. And Athens falls out of view. Pretty sad. But there was fruit nonetheless picked from there. So the question that I have is, was Paul's approach in addressing these men to be blamed for the lack of over, overwhelming response that we're accustomed to seeing? We're used to seeing multitudes come to faith. And it didn't happen in Athens. So is it Paul's approach to be blamed? Some have said yes. That's why I bring it up. Paul should have just stuck with the scriptures, is the cry. I don't believe that's the case. I believe rather that the lack of response from the Athenians shows how deeply and deadly idolatry is to our hearts. And what a barrier and hindrance it becomes to coming to faith in the true God. I think that's the reason, not Paul's approach. So I want to end our time talking about this approach, what we call today natural theology or general revelation. Because there's, there's a division in the church today and it's a serious division and it's causing, in my opinion the church to lose a voice with the culture and an opportunity that's great. So what about appeals to nature? Is it valid? Is is it okay to appeal to anything outside of the Bible? That's true. As Christian, is it authoritative to do that? One of the arguments that I've had many discussions with many people about is, well, it's always fallible. Science and their opinions and their theories are always changing. So keep in mind, all the Bible is true. Every word of it is true. Yet God has not revealed all truth in the Bible. All truth is God's truth, yet all God's truth is not found in the Bible. So let's talk about this. I want to to challenge us. To think critically about this. Natural theology, what Paul appeals to here through nature, plays an important part of God's own testimony to the world. Let that sink in. This is God's testimony of himself in a special way. But creation is also. And Paul said that in Acts 14. He's not left himself without witness. And he points to creation. So nature, natural theology, is part of God's testimony of himself to mankind. If that's true, then we need to use it. (laughs) We need to know it, right? But what's happened in the church today? Around the turn of the 1900s, the church retreated almost entirely from engaging in any kind of discipline outside of theology. That's what happened. And now the church 
We, we've kind of retreated into our space here and we've shut the doors and we've locked them and we put earplugs in and we, don't, we pretend everything's okay. And when we go to the world and, and we try and minister to them, we don't understand why nothing's sinking in. Well, it's because we've burned the bridge in many ways. And we need to go back and establish some of these disciplines. I have a firm conviction. In, in fact, I spent a lot of money <laughs> studying this stuff because I was convicted we must be aware of this stuff. It transformed me. So natural theology, what is it? Well, theology itself is the study of God. Natural theology is the study of what one can know of God from the study of nature. Special or supernatural theology is the study of God based on God's supernatural revelation apart from nature, i.e. the Bible. So that's how you understand theology. It's twofold. Natural theology and supernatural theology. This is God's special and direct revelation through his word. Truths in here we'd never come to know through nature. There are truths in here that we do know through nature. But natural theology is the study of what one can know of God from the study of nature. So how do these two balance each other out? Well, general revelation, natural theology is broader than special revelation. It includes science, it includes math, it includes the arts, it includes philosophy, ethics. For instance, the Bible, you're not going to learn how to do algebra. Does that make algebra false? Does it make calculus false? Obviously not. Does it make physics false because it doesn't teach physics? No, of course not. But I say that not to mock us. We treat it that way. We treat everything else with suspicion because the Bible didn't say it. Nonetheless, we know it's true. Even the undeniable laws of thought, and I love looking at this. I know this is not... Um, tasteful to many, but the laws of thought, the laws of non-contradiction, the laws of identity, all these things, you literally can't even read Scripture apart from these self-evident laws. Yet nowhere in Scripture does it identify these laws for us. They're self-evident. And so, natural theology, there's a biblical basis to pursue it. Psalm 19, 1-6, you need to study. The whole psalm actually is about natural theology and supernatural theology, it talks about creation, declaring the glory of God. And then verse 7 through the end of the psalm, it talks about how special this is. And it exalts both. Romans 1, though, if you want to turn with me real quick to Romans 1, verse 18 through 21. This is Paul the Apostle. He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress, what? The truth. So unrighteous people are suppressing truth. What's the truth? Verse 19, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived. Highlight that word. These things have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. I've read so many theologians that say, 
Because of man's sinful nature, they can't know anything apart from God unless he supernaturally shows them. That's false. God's shown through creation. It's self-evident. It's not that man can't know those things. It's that he won't. He suppresses it. That's what our sinfulness does. We don't want these inconvenient truths. So we make a philosophy and a worldview that can justify how I want to live. That's what we're doing. Romans 2, 14 through 16 talks about how the law of God is written on the hearts and consciences of the Gentiles, even though they didn't receive it themselves like the Jews. Nonetheless, their conscience is afflicted when they sin. I dare, I dare you to go try this. It wouldn't be, wouldn't be hard. Go ask somebody who, uh, who doesn't know scripture at all if they've ever had an afflicted conscience and then ask them why. You'll get your answer. There's so much for us in natural theology to look at. And, and I love this. I've, I've been, uh, um, I hated science quite honestly when I was growing up. And I, I've loved it now. I love it in the connection of, of the study of theology as a whole. But here's just a few from which we can draw evidence. Cosmology, the study of the cosmos. In the beginning, it's interesting. Albert Einstein's theory of general relativity proved that the universe had a beginning. And his theory has been more tested than any other scientific theory down to the ninth decimal point is proven accurate. And yet Einstein himself hated the conclusion that his theory came to. Why? Because he was an Epicurean. He believed matter always existed. And it was an inconvenience to him that it didn't exist because of the implication it meant there had to be a creator. He didn't want that. And it's a famous Foupaw, a Russian mathematician, called him out on it as he tried to avoid it and he later confessed that it was the greatest blunder of his career. And he accepted the conclusion. If it implies a creator, it implies a creator. It is what it is. Physics. There's so much in physics. This is so cool. I'll give you one example how, you know, the, the laws that God has sovereignly chosen to run our entire universe can be written very simply on a single sheet of paper. Did you know that? In very simple formulas. But how fine-tuned these laws of physics are. Let me give you an example. Gravity. We all know what gravity is. If gravity were any less or weak, we couldn't exist. Let me show you how finely tuned gravity is to allow life in our universe to exist. It's fine-tuned to the tune of one part, now follow me, in a hundred million, billion, 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 billion. That's pretty cool. And did you know there's hundreds of fine-tuned things like this for life to exist? Physics. One of my professors goes, he's a scientist, he goes all over the world speaking of creation and the evidence for it from, he's an astronomer, a physicist, and his team, he's got biochemists and everything else, but he spoke in, in our class of a, a conference in Japan where a group of 50 Japanese scientists who don't know the scriptures at all came to him after the conference and said, what, what you just described, we've been witnessing all over. But we, we had no answers for it. You've put it in a framework we see. 
Pretty cool. He took the evidence of science and took it straight here and they said, yep, that's what we're seeing. Astronomy, location, location, location. I'm not going to talk about that, but study of astronomy has fascinated me. Biochemistry, molecular machines, I think this is probably the strongest case. Darwin himself said this, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, then my theory would absolutely break down. Well, in Darwin's day, when he looked at the cell, you know what he saw? He saw a blob. That's all he could see. Since Darwin's day, what have we been able to do? We've been able to penetrate the cell. And guess what we found? We found an entire molecular city that even human invention can't get close to replicating. There are systems after systems after systems within the cell that could not have come about from slight modifications, numerous successive over time. Michael Behe wrote a book, and Michael Behe is not a Christian, but he wrote a book called Darwin's Black Box where he challenges Darwinian evolution, macroevolution, from the sense that there are so many things within the body that are irreducibly complex, what he says. What that means is you think of a mousetrap. You take any one part of a mousetrap away, it doesn't work. It's how our body is. They're irreducibly complex. They need every part. And they don't work unless every part's there. The eye is one of the greatest examples. Biochemistry is a fruitful study for Christians. DNA. This is amazing. There's six feet of DNA coiled up inside of each one of your 100 trillion cells. Did you know that? Six feet of DNA in every one of your 100 trillion cells. And there's information spelling out the building blocks of life. Who put the information there? A, pro, a computer does not program itself. It takes information from an intelligent outside source. Other areas, history, art, archaeology. Did you know there's not been one archaeological discovery that's ever contradicted scripture? Not one. Incredible. Rational proofs. Anthropology, the study of man, musics, goes on and on. So when general and special revelation, when nature and Bible overlap, what do we do? God's revelation in his word is without error. It's infallible. However, keep in mind, our interpretation of his word is not without error. Same is true for general revelation. God's revelation in his world is infallible. Our interpretation of it is not. So when they overlap, do you give preference to one or the other? No. You test both. We've been talking about in our class on Tuesday night how to study the Bible. I've given our class an example of John Calvin, who's a great theologian. He interpreted some passages of the Old Testament that talks about God putting the world on pillars and, and on a foundation. He interpreted it literally because in his mind it made no sense that a ball of mass could float in space. It had to be supported by pillars just like Isaiah says. We know that's false, right? How do we know it's false, though? Through science. I've read a story. I saw a story of a man who built a rocket himself because he was convinced out of Revelation chapter 7 and its reference to the four corners of the earth 
that the earth was flat and scientists are leading us astray. So he built a rocket to shoot himself up so he could take a look himself. How do we know that Revelation 7, 1 is a figure of speech? Well, we can take a picture of the globe and show him. But that was science. The reverse is true as well. I want to read you a quote. Scientists are often wrong in their interpretation of the world, are they not? Here's a, a quote from a man named Robert Jastro, who was an agnostic. He was not a Christian. And he headed up NASA. And I'll end with this. He headed up NASA. And as they started looking in the cosmos and seeing all this evidence for Creator, how awesome it is. Here's what he said. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountain of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there the whole time. It's an agnostic confessing. When, when we look into the heavens, we see a creation. And it's contradicted what science might have held to in naturalism. They're complementary, in other words, and this was an example of how Paul masterfully uses both. My encouragement to us, church, is get engaged with these. Don't be afraid to engage in these disciplines. You might be overwhelmed to find there is so much out there for the Christian to have starting points of contact with. It's fun. It's fun. Let's pray. I invite the worship team up. Father, we just want to thank you for this time we've had. Father, we want to thank you that you've not left yourself without a witness in every way. You've shown yourself your power, your invisible attributes through the things you've made so that we are without excuse. And while, while natural theology and general revelation is not sufficient to save us, it is sufficient to condemn us because we are without excuse. And because of that, you also sent us the special revelation of your son in the gospel because it is sufficient to save us, as Paul said in Romans 1. It is the power of God unto salvation. And so we find in Athens him using both natural theology and preaching the resurrection in Christ, preaching the gospel to them. And that is such a powerful twofold punch. Yet, Father, he did it because he wanted people to come to know you. Father, give this church, equip this church in the same way to be skilled in the word, to be skilled in the disciplines outside of the word. Because all things, as Psalm 19 says, speak of your glory. And it is awesome to perceive and behold. Give us zeal and give us passion for that, Lord. As we sing this last song, and we know this song, Lord, but it's, it's just a, a good reminder of what this passage spoke of, how, how many views are out there, and yet we can know the truth. You've revealed the truth clearly to us of who you are. We pray in Jesus' name.